Hello, I'm Bill Peschel, and this is Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, a conversation with Greer McAllister. Greer grew up in the Midwest and lives with her family in Washington, D.C. She earned her Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing at American University and is a regular contributor to the Chicago Review of Books and Writers Unboxed. Now, to call Greer's work historical novels seems to me to be a simplification. She writes stories about women that are set in the past, but whose very existence is a challenge to the limitations imposed on them by society and even themselves. Greer's women start in alien territories as a stage magician in The Magician's Lie, a Pinkerton detective as in Girl in Disguise, and as in her latest book, The Arctic Fury, as members of a polar expedition that went disastrously wrong. They're courageous women, but they're fallible as well. They make mistakes and sometimes they fail, but they fight back and that's what makes their struggles all the more compelling to read. Greer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bill. Okay, was I right about that or do you think that was all right? I love how you, I, I love how you express that. I've never heard it put quite that way before and it's really, it's really wonderful to sort of hear what I'm putting into the world coming back to me uh, in translation kind of, that's neat. It is always something writers have to deal with. And sometimes when they get an interpretation of a character or unfortunately even of the author themselves, they have to say, no, that's not what I intended. But the reader, is the reader always right, do you think? In a way, I mean, I feel like, um, you know, I put into the book what I want to, but sometimes a reader takes something out of it that I didn't mean to put into it, either um, because of the imperfection of my vision or just because people interpret things differently. People bring their own selves to, um, to the book. So I never disagree with a reader's interpretation. If that's what they see, then that's what they see. Um, so it's, it's a, a vast variety of things out there. That's also what makes reading literary fiction as opposed to, to genre fiction, which entertains, and I have nothing against entertainment, but sometimes, but literary fiction, if you read it throughout your life, you tend to bring a different, you tend to bring different experiences to the text. Um, I can remember we were reading Hemingway in college and uh, The Sun Also Rises, in which there was so much I missed that now that I've read it, um, I tend to bring a, a different sensibility to it. And mm -hmm. I could see that would be the same with, with your works as well. Um, I also want to mention, by the way, and this is, this is for the readers in our audience, there are, I wanted to, I should have put in here that you're an award-winning author. And that has almost become kind of degraded these days, except that in your case here, I'll, reading from your website, Magician's Lie was a USA Today bestseller, an Indie Next Pick, a Target Book Club selection, um, Arctic Fury was also an Indie Next and Library Reads picks and an Amazon Best Book of the Month, spotlighted new releases in Goodreads and Libro FM and Pop Sugar. And those are pretty good awards to have after your name, you know? It's pretty fun. Yeah. The, um, I, I just love um, Indie Next, particularly, is something that all of the indie booksellers have voted on and get, express their opinion. And only a few, only a few books, I think it's maybe 12 books a month, get that. Only 10 books a month get library reads. And so for librarians and booksellers to get behind my books in that way is so fantastic. Um, and RJ Fury, this is the first one that's been an Amazon Best Book of the Month. So that's been a new experience for me. Yeah. Uh, good one. <laughs> yeah. Does that give you any kind of charge about it after, because you've, you wrote Arctic Fury, what, a year ago, maybe? Um, is it kind of, 
is it just like, oh, well, that's a nice thing, or is it? Does it really strike home with you? It's both. I mean, it's it's it always strikes home with me. I mean, it's the process of making the book. It feels a little bit distanced because, like you said, the work happens, and then there's some time, and then the reward happens. And mm -hmm. so, if it happened right as you know, right together, it might feel different, but it feels pretty good this way too. Um, <laughs> and it gives me something to talk about on social media when I'm saying like, here's a book, here's a book, here's a book, because there are so many books. Um, and as you have behind you and as you have at the store, um, it's just, there are always so many new books coming out and how do you convince people this is the one that you want to read? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why I want to have this kind of conversation because I want readers to understand whether or not this is the book for them. Um, there's a, there was a lovely uh, review from uh, Smart Women Trashy, Smart Bitches Trashy Books, excuse me. There's a quotation that I thought was really intriguing about Arctic Fury. And it said, this is a mystery. Everyone has ulterior motives, secrets, and flaws. It's a joy to see all these things reveal themselves in the course of a well-constructed story. There were many things that didn't make sense to me until late in the book when they clicked beautifully together. I mean, that's a great, obviously that's a great, you know, thing to have to say, but it's also an interest to readers to say, be patient with this book because it will all make sense in the end and you will really feel the impact of it. And I think it does make a difference what you go into a book expecting. Um, you know, we all hear word of mouth from friends and, and read things online and say, oh, okay, well, that's what that book is about. I had a, I, I read my Goodreads reviews, which I know is a terrible idea and I really shouldn't do it. I never respond to my Goodreads reviews. That's not what they're for. Um, but somebody said the other day, I don't know why this is classified as horror. It's a terrible horror novel. And I thought, it is a terrible horror novel because it's not a horror novel at all. Um, so that person went into it. Someone had told them that it was a, a book in the horror genre and they were extremely disappointed. And I totally understand why that's the case. Um, so if you go into it, like you said, like the, that great review said, if you go into it expecting a mystery and knowing that things will be slowly revealed over time, um, I think that sets you up to, to connect with the book and to succeed rather than setting you up to be super disappointed that there is not nearly as much blood and you know, de decapitation and whatnot as you might expect. Um, in something more strictly, you know, in something that's actually horror. I wonder if they got confused with the series, The Terror, which is also based on the possible. Franklin expedition. That is very gory, yeah. Okay. How, um, were you drawn to history as a subject when, when you were younger, as a child? Definitely. I really enjoyed, um, I, I enjoyed learning facts. I enjoyed sort of thinking back to, oh, well, things used to be different, and here are all the ways in which they were different. Um, I didn't really write about it until I got um, until I got started on the magician's lie. But history has always been one of my one of my favorite subjects. Were there particular areas or particular subjects you felt more drawn to? Um, European history, just sort of having the having the the long perspective of wars and cultures and just the how things change and, and how things stay the same over time. I feel like that's sort of um, where I focused the most when I was studying history. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Um, in the, the one time I was in Europe, I ended up in, well, Chartres Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And to see that structure and knowing that it had been built over generations and that it still stood today was really quite humbling in a way. 
you know, the, and like how, how long it took for, you know, how long people lived and what they, what they did. I was always attracted to um, daily life, which is, I guess, one reason when I was reading Girl in Disguise right here, which I, I bought at um, Murder As You Like It a few years ago. Oh. Um, yes, you signed my copy. And uh, that's intended as a compliment because I was a longtime book reviewer. And as you know, book reviewers tend not to have to buy their own books. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so to invest money in it is meant as a compliment. Serious, yeah. But, it, but it's also, as, as a historical writer, you get into the uh, minutiae of day-to-day -day life as part of the background of the story. You have to place these characters um, in what, how they, what clothes they wear, how they act, uh, how they speak, what they eat. Um, is, that, is that easy for you to find out? Is that easy to do? Or is that um, otherwise? Yes and no. It's the information is out there um, in most cases. And so the real problem is figuring out, I think, how much of it to put in, because I could describe, you know, every meal that Kate Warren eats <laughs> in Girl in Disguise, but I don't because that's, you know, if I were describing my life, I would, well, if I were describing my life, I really like to eat. So I might talk about <laughs> what I had for breakfast and then lunch and what I'm planning to have for dinner. But um, that's not the most interesting thing going on in Kate's life. Kate is a Pinkerton detective who's, you know, infiltrating criminal gangs and solving murders and then being a spy for the union. And she's got a lot going on. Mm -hmm. um, but what I really want to do and what I think is the, the beautiful and powerful thing about historical fiction is to draw that world for the reader and to bring the reader in. And we can do all sorts of, of uh, beautiful visual descriptions and that needs to be part of it. You need to sort of see what Kate sees as she's walking down the street. But one of the things I really like to do is look for what are the smells? What are the tastes? What does it sound like? Um, I read a, a book a couple of years ago that said, you know, somebody was walking down the street and they heard, they heard the sound of a popular song playing from the window. Um, and if I had written that, I would have said what the popular song is and maybe a little bit about it because I want the reader to just be in that moment. Um, and so those details are definitely available. You can go back and see, you know, what songs were climbing the charts in 1931 or 1853 or, or whatever, even before they had charts. Um, but you have to decide how much of that you want to put in there or the text just becomes a recitation of facts. Um, I really want the narrative to be the, the driving force, but whatever carefully chosen details I can place along the way to make that world feel real to the reader, um, that's, that's where I really get excited um, about the writing. It seems like a lot of what your work in writing and rewriting is to be able to put in <laughs> enough of the facts to convey the flavor of the time, but also to serve your story and to look at it fresh to say, how do I take this? Can I take this out so it doesn't become an info dump? Yep. And I can't always find that line for myself. I rely on, on beta readers and a critique group when I'm in one and my agent and my editor. I wrote uh, in The Magician's Lie, there's a scene where they're serving the first Christmas dinner at Biltmore. And so they're running up and down the stairs and bringing all the glassware and silver and, and food and all that. Um, so my agent read it and said, you know, it feels like you could go a little bit farther here and write more. So then I ended up writing like two pages about this Christmas dinner. She's like, no, that's too much. You should, you should dial it back. <laughs> and then we got to exactly the right amount of time about a Christmas dinner and what was, you know, the oysters and the succotash and whatnot that were being, uh, being served. So yeah. I need help sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we all we all do. I have I have my wife who who gets out what she calls old red, and I can tell when I've I've really stepped over the line by the number of exclamation points she appends to the end of a particular section. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to Arctic Fury, which is I don't want to say it's necessarily about the Franklin expedition to find uh, to finish finding the Northwest Passage. There's something beyond that. So, do you want to set it up? Sure. It's definitely inspired by the Franklin Expedition. So it's the story of, uh, it's a historical novel. It's, it's fiction, my own invented story, about 13 women who are sent to the Arctic in search of Franklin's lost expedition in 1853, and what happens when not all of them come back. So you're following sort of dual timelines of following the women getting together the expedition and, and working their way northward, uh, and then following another timeline a year later when the leader of the expedition, Virginia Reeve, is on trial for murder. So uh, I got to write a murder trial, which I've never gotten to do before. So that was that was fun. Others were, were always trying to find something new to do, right, to grow as writers, as well as to entertain our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one, this one was pretty ambitious, um, because in addition to having Virginia's point of view, I actually have one chapter from every one of the women on the expedition. So there are 13 different points of view, which I still kind of can't believe my editor let me get away with. But <laughs> um, she gave me really good advice, which was if you're going to use another point of view, make sure you give us something in that point of view that the other points of view don't know or wouldn't reveal or wouldn't view in the same way. Um, and in that way, I was able to build a, a much larger story. Um, and it, it felt like it needed to be epic. It's a, it's a trip into the Arctic. So, mm-hmm. Well, the um, woman behind the expedition, we'll get to Virginia in a moment, but the, uh, the woman behind it was Jane Franklin, who was Franklin's wife. And she was, I looked her up and she was quite a character herself. She was one of those who did not, she had the, she had the money because she was of the aristocracy. She could do what she wanted and she did it. Yes, she was definitely what we would consider a, a woman ahead of her time. So she's one of the um, characters in the book who is real life and has the same name um, as as the real life person. But yes, when her husband was off doing his posts and, and jobs, she was on a barge up the Nile, you know, in the, in the 1830s and 1840s, which I think, you know, I don't know what uh, sort of how you learned history, but how I learned history as a kid, it was, oh, well, women of the time were very, you know, they just stayed home and they, you know, they nurtured their families. And yes, a lot of them did, but not all of them did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had adventurers like Freya Stark, I remember, who was adventuring in the Middle East at a time when women simply didn't do that. Right. And uh, Jane Franklin, as I, re- I understand, she uh, she plays a role in the history of Tasmania because, I, was, mm-hmm. it, was it her husband was posted there? I, I yes, yeah, he was the lieutenant governor. Yeah. yeah. And she ended up roaming the, the land and actually kind of working to improve the lives of the people there. She tried to do what she could do within her limited scope and um, had quite, a, quite an effect on Tasmanian history. Mm-hmm. So she uh, ended up, she financed a number of the expeditions, seven of them, to help to try to find her husband because they, he left on two ships, Terror and Erebus. Is that the right That's name? correct. Yeah. Okay. Good memory still works. And, and they're lost and she sends expedition after expedition and you decided to send um, a different expedition along. You kind of inserted yourself, inserted your ideas into the story at that point. So you had 
an expedition in which you had 13 women with varying roles going off to try to find them, and they fail and come back. Now, with, as, with regards to Virginia Reed, who's described as an adventurer, did you have any characters in mind when you developed her? Um, she is sort of based on someone from history that I'm not going to talk too much about because I don't want to, um, to, to have any spoilers in the conversation. Okay. Um, but I was able to draw from the historical record, um, for the inspiration of Virginia and for, for several of the other characters also that are, um, a lot of the women I've sort of assembled a fictional supergroup, Um, but they're all based on the roles that women had in the 1850s and women of the frontier and women who were doing bold and unusual things. Um, and in the author's note in the back, you can sort of, I, I sort of wrote out which ones are inspired by people in, in particular from this era in history. There's a mountaineer, there's a, um, a journalist, a battlefield nurse, um, people who are drawn very specifically from uh, women in history. And for most of them, I changed the names because they're loosely inspired and they didn't do any of the things that I <laughs> have them doing in this book. Uh, but I felt like for Lady Jane Franklin, she was close enough to, to reality to um, do this. Because she, the more that I read about her, the more I'm like, she's the kind of woman who might actually do this. And there was some discussion when Franklin was lost and she was sending all of those expeditions. There was some talk that she was going to try to join one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it did not go forward. And she was, I think she was about 60 years old at the time. So she um, might have done it if she were younger. But uh, she, um, she struck me as a person who might get fed up after she, you know, sent several expeditions that failed and decided, maybe she decided to do something completely different. And, and maybe she believed that women could do uh, whatever they thought they could do and not what society thought they could do. So mm -hmm. I like to write on the edge of plausibility. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's very uh, that's very true. There, um, I'm actually um, been reading of all things Agatha Christie's uh, *Secret of Chimneys*, in mm -hmm. which there's actually a quotation from one of the characters who talks about the attitude of the aristocracy. Just in general, they never see themselves bound by anybody's rules. They are they are a force unto themselves, which means that they can do very silly things at times. But it's also something that is uh, actually rather admirable. You kind of wish you could have that feeling, and that that's actually what I saw sometimes in Kate Warren in *Girl in Disguise*, where she is is in the interior monologues. She's realizing that she's scared. She is absolutely scared and she's having to find her way to continue doing what she's doing, whether she's operating a disguise or uh, trying to um, um, uh, you know, seduce a man far enough, but not too far. Um, and then that's, to me, that's a universal trait. We, I think we all have, I think, unless you're absolutely totally unfeeling or uh, totally unself-aware, we all have that boundary that we have to try to punch through. And that's what I, I really like about your stories is how much we get to know these characters as people and recognize them as such. Um, in uh, Arctic Fury, uh, Virginia is... Um, I, I, you'll, you'll have to correct me because I understand that uh, uh, Caprice Collins one of the members of the expedition and a member of a wealthy family is kind of set up as her nemesis. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, she, I, I think of them, I think of them as foils. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when I think about works that, that I really enjoy books and, and uh, 
movies and TV shows, when I was developing this book, uh, I was thinking about Deadwood, which is one of my favorite TV series ever. Uh, and I was thinking about how uh, you've got Sheriff Bullock, who's the very upstanding, uh, you know, voice of the law, but you've also got Al Swearingen, who is really, really interesting and not about the law at all. And so I thought, well, if I can set up these two women who are, you know, it's not good and evil, it's not light and dark, it's not right and wrong, they both have flaws and they both have strengths. Um, if I could have these two strong foils, um, that will make the story much more interesting. Um, especially when you find out, you know, it's, it's fairly early in the novel to, to reveal that Caprice is the one who's been murdered and, and that's uh, who Virginia is on trial um, for, for murdering. Um, but then in the backstory, when you're following the expedition, you get to see them really go at it. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And they're also, they're, they're uh, opposites in a lot of ways. And just like you were talking about the, uh, just now with Jane Franklin and the rules of the aristocracy, um, Caprice has grown up with money. No one's ever told her no. She's done whatever she wanted. Um, and she was inspired by a real life uh, mountaineer because that was something that that women of this class were starting to do. They would climb, it wasn't too long after this that a woman climbed the Alps, mm -hmm. um, climbed the Matterhorn. You know, it's, it's something, you know, she could do and so she did. Uh, so Caprice was fun to write for that reason because she just sort of does what she wants and says what she wants. And those are always fun characters. Yeah. I should mention that the book operates on two tracks because you have the trial running, but you also have, I guess it's the flashbacks to try to tell the story of the expedition and how they come to be in the, in how um, Virginia came to be on trial. So that, um, is that difficult to try to coordinate? That's like you're thinking with two brains, <laughs> two narrative strands, and you want to make sure that they kind of dovetail right. It was way easier than I thought it was going to be for this one because it was so brutal in The Magician's Lie. So that was my first work of historical fiction. It took me five years to get it right. Uh, and it goes back and forth between, you know, a woman who has been accused of murder and is being, uh, you know, held by a, a policeman who may or may not let her go. Um, and then the other timeline is she's sort of telling the story of, of how she got there. It's much more spread out across time than this one. Um, but I was so, I struggled so much with those, the part of the tapestry. What do I tell now? What do I tell, you know, here? How do I tell it? Um, and you would think this one would have been harder because it's 13 points of view as well as kind of two and a half timelines. There's a little other stuff that, that ends up coming in. Um, but it was easier for whatever reason. And I feel like part of that was actually the number of chapters that I had to do because I had to find a spot for each woman to do her thing. I, I put it in that order. I didn't write it in that order. I write completely out of order. I just write whatever comes to mind until I close up all the holes. Um, but then going back and saying, okay, does the trial make sense? Does the expedition make sense? And the expedition is a lot dictated by geography. You know, they've got to go through the Great Lakes before they go overland, before they go up Hudson Bay, before they go onto the ice. And so um, it didn't have as many potential moving parts as the magician's lie did or, or something else that didn't have that track to follow. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, I have to say, is there anything else about the book that you wanted to point out to readers as far, because I'm reluctant, obviously I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the book except from reading about it online, and I'm sorry for that, just the way it happens sometimes, but at the same time I know that there's spoilers that you don't want revealed. 
So right. kind of kind of in this position of, of asking for any kind of help. Is there anything else that we want to know that you think that readers would know in order to decide if they want, if this is for them? Yeah, I don't think it's absolutely necessary that you know going in, but one of the things that I was really trying to do with the book is um, more accurately reflect the diversity of the people who were living in history, because I feel like we get you know, the history book view of history is here are the generals and here are the presidents and here are the stories of, of these guys who did these things. Um, but that doesn't mean that people of all kinds weren't present there. So I have people of different ethnicities and backgrounds and classes and, and orientations and, and everything like that. You know, the kind of people we have today, none of them were invented recently, right? right. <laughs> uh, these guys, every kind of person has always existed. Um, and the fact that they've been left out of, um, fiction and history in the past is really um, something that, that I feel we should be trying to correct and, and to, to do a better job. Um, and so I did try in, since I had 13 women that I could choose from, I, I did my best to sort of make sure that I was reflecting more of um, the, the accurate um, society of the time. It wasn't necessarily high society, but these are people who are on the fringe of society doing um, doing bold things. And I think the less you have to, to, um, if you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, um, then those are the people who are doing really, um, uh, really interesting things. So, um, reflecting diversity in the party was definitely writing inclusively is what I call it. So I definitely did my best to write, um, inclusively as I put this together. Um, and I guess the other thing would be just that, um, I do, I, again, I shouldn't read my Goodreads reviews. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. <laughs> but I've had people who said, oh, I read it. And then I was really disappointed to find out that there never were 13 women who went uh, on an expedition to the Arctic. Um, and there weren't, as far as I know. Uh, and that's, you know, if that's something that's going to bother you, then there are biographies of Lady Jane Franklin. There are many, many books um, about the actual Franklin expedition, if that is the story that you would rather read, um, of the facts of Arctic exploration at that time, you can read the journals of John Ray, who did some really excellent um, exploration work. Um, but if you want to read a, something that's more of a fun story, placing um, you know placing new people in there with a strong narrative thread, um, which is why I like to read fiction over nonfiction because I find it. Um, particularly satisfying in that way. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in for a novel uh, and you're in for a mystery, um, then, then I think this might be for you. Yeah, okay. Um, you've also, uh, I've seen some other interviews in which you've also recommended other historical writers but that you, that, or uh, books that you're particularly fond of. Do you have any in, in particular that you've read lately that you'd like to recommend? Oh, um, it's not out yet, but you can sort of mark it down or put a hold on it at the library or, or whatever. There's a, um, if you're not sick of World War II historical fiction, um, and even if you are, this one's different. Um, my friend Erica Roebuck has a new book coming out called The Invisible Woman, and it's about a World War II spy named Virginia Hall, um, who had one leg and was the most feared spy uh, of the time by the Nazis who did just amazing, amazing work um, in the European theater during the war. So again, it's called The Invisible Woman and it's out, I think it's out February 1st. It's out pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I just did an event last night with Melanie Benjamin who wrote a book called The Children's Blizzard mm -hmm. about the great uh, blizzard on the plains of 1888. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we thought that they paired nicely. Uh, <laughs> Snow, like, cold, starvation. It, yeah. 
Exactly. If you're really cold and you want to read this, cuddle up next to your fire with some cocoa and read a book. Uh, the Arctic Fury and the Children's Blizzard are both, um, they will both make you very glad that you have that fire and that cup of cocoa. If nothing else, that is what historical fiction teaches me is, um, uh, P.J. O'Rourke said it uh, succinctly, modern dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You appreciate, yeah. appreciate modern dentistry after <laughs> learning how, how dentistry was in previous, previous eras. Yeah. Yeah. People have asked me who I would be if I went on the expedition. And my answer is I would not be on the expedition. Nobody would have invited me. And if they did, I probably wouldn't go. Um, <laughs> at least in my, you know, in my now comfortable uh, life uh, as a mother and author and all the other things that I am. So I, um, I admire people who can undertake that kind of thing, like just the same way that I under, I admire people who run marathons and I admire people who, uh, you know, sail across the ocean, but uh, I, I do my thing and then I make up stuff um, so we can all, all uh, journey in a different way. Absolutely. Are you doing any more promotions with regards to this, uh, with regards to the Arctic Fury? Yes. Uh, it's interesting because the book came out in December, but most of my events have been concentrated in January and February. So I have more than a dozen things on the calendar at this point. Um, so if people visit my website at greermcallister.com slash events, um, I have joint events coming up with Marie Benedict, who wrote The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, and um, Janelle Sisliski, who wrote Beauty Among Ruins. Um, lots, of, lots of fun stuff, sometimes just me, sometimes one other person, sometimes panels. Mm -hmm. um, there's something the weekend of the Super Bowl called Super Book 2 that's just authors all day uh, online. Um, so lots of, lots of other ways to catch me if you want to um, want to tune in for a live event or watch a replay. Okay. Um, do you still have a newsletter? I do. I am very irregular about sending it out. I'll probably send one out this month, but you can sign up for that at, again, greermcallister.com slash newsletter. Okay. And you also have an Instagram and a Twitter feed um, yep. at the Lady Greer. Is That's that right. right. I didn't. I didn't want to make people misspell McAllister more times than they absolutely had to. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah. So Twitter and Instagram are both the at sign and the Lady Greer. Okay, well, and I hope our readers will decide to to look into the Arctic Fury. We have copies for sale at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop. And um, I wanted to thank you very much for talking with us today, Greer. Thanks, I really appreciate it, Bill. It's great talk. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. And this is Bill Peschel with a conversation with Greer McAllister. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. The Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents podcast is sponsored by the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. During the Wuhan flu outbreak, the store is open with limited hours, plus we accept appointments and offer a drive-by service. The store will also ship books to your home, including those from the Peschel Press mystery line, including our annotated editions of novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. To learn more, visit the store at www.mysterybooksonline.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>